0: Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Intersecting Storylines," the podcast where we talk with the people whose stories have intersected with my own. My name's Frankie, and I really appreciate you listening. Now, it's been basically months since I've had this conversation with my, my good dear friend Michael. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a doozy, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's quite intense. And it was really hard to edit down as well as to even just have this conversation in general. Even though it's one that Michael and I have had almost several times, Uh, we often get together on the weekends and go throwing, throwing discus or lifting, and it's always such an amazing time. And he's so insightful and so experienced in just life. I absolutely adore and appreciate that this man is in my life. Uh, I'm so thankful that I can call him a friend and basically like a brother of mine. I consider him. A brother, it's it's truly incredible. Uh, we go into it a little bit how long we've known each other, essentially since kindergarten or first grade. So it's one of those twenty plus year friendships that we've had, and we're only in our twenties, which is kind of crazy to believe. So I'm so excited for you all to meet my friend, and I'm so appreciative that he was so honest in this conversation. I don't know what else to say about it. You'll you'll hear it, and I hope you absolutely, uh, I hope you can learn something from it. And something that maybe you didn't know. All right. Well, here's one of the nicest people I have ever met. My friend, Michael. And away we go. Cool. Are you already recording? (laughs) Yeah, we just started, buddy. Oh, sweet. Welcome. (laughs) So this is your first podcast? This is
1: my first podcast. This is uh, very different because I'm on the other end of this usually. I'm usually the audio tech and then uh, I'm recording you.
0: Yeah, so wait, what is that like? What are you just listening or like how is that from your end? Oh, so
1: um you know, my job is the general manager for Amos Productions, been here for going on six years. Also, I love
0: how you got so official. Oh thank <laughs> you. Okay. It's it's just yeah, it's, it's just me, but
1: Oh I know. Um <laughs> I don't know how else to uh, chill out, you know, during uh you know, when I'm talking about work. I'm oh, always gotcha. I'm always networking. So Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Sale. Yeah, it's yeah. Why always...
0: should I hire you? Tell, <laughs> tell me. I've got have got a lovely wedding in mind. What, oh what, yeah, yeah. What, and what? this
1: is my exactly my spiel. So I've been with the company for six years now. Um, you know, I started off you know in college. Um, you know, had video experience first, but then I kind of got into the whole audio engineering thing. Okay, so I'm a saw you there. Yeah.
0: So when did you start doing video?
1: Frank, you know this. <laughs> Ten, uh oh, yeah, do prob- this. So but
0: maybe me in twenty years will forget. Yeah, okay, and maybe somebody who doesn't know. So us that's is true. Listening. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's true. Um, so I got—I actually can't remember when I got into film because I've been doing it for that long.
0: Well, that's a great answer.
1: I—I I, I found some old photos of me. You know, uh, this last year actually, um, filming what looks like in two thousand two. Which would oh, put wow. me about seven or eight years old at that point in time.
0: Is that when we did our little film together? No, that was actually
1: middle school. That was a figure, or maybe oh, yes. late so elementary school. school. No, I'm talking like two, like post 9/11, like right after 9/11, because uh, my dad and I, my parents went to the Pompanito when I was a kid, and uh, looks like I was holding a camp My dad, my mom took a picture of me holding a camcorder, filming everybody. Oh, look at that! So that would have been, you know. Post-9-11, my dad was stationed in uh, the Golden Gate Bridge at that point in time. So we used to visit him on the weekends when he was doing his guard duty. So it would have been around that time. So like, you know, within a month
0: or two, like so October, November 01. Dang. Okay, so we'll come back to the the stationed portion. Okay. But do you remember what your first film was?
1: (laughs) Monkeys on Heroin.
0: Oh, what? That yeah. was it? Oh, my god! Yeah, okay, yeah, so no, no. What, what happened? Yeah. I don't remember what Yeah, yeah, So,
1: that. I mean, there's a lot of times I filmed on this, you know, I used to, my parents got me a little camera for Christmas one year uh, with, believe it or not, was like, I think it was a two gigabyte thumb, uh, USB, not USB, uh, SD card. Oh, wow. Two gigabytes, and it probably had enough camera footage on there for maybe 30 seconds at a time. Maybe a minute. So... um I was doing some stuff, you know, with, like, Jordan, my best friend, you know, elementary school. Maybe some people came over to the house and we did some stupid things. But Monkeys on Heroin was the first one we did. And um, nothing that fascinating, just a friend from Scouts, uh, Nick, you know Nick, and um, him just acting like a monkey. And then my friend Michael jumping in and injecting the monkey with heroin. And, you know, what 13-year-old kids do, just pretend, like, you know, interpret what a monkey be like on heroin. Yes, That's I remember it's...
0: Nick and his like monkey screeches. Yes, he such a skill for that.
1: Yes, and that would layer form the purple flying monkeys, you know, for the Boy Scouts. Yes, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um. Yes, I mean we. know, uh, yeah, I think it was an overflux
0: of uh, patrols, scouts, and uh, Boy Scouts, and uh... we should maybe go a little bit further back. Yeah, so, Michael, you and I have been friends since what kindergarten, first grade, just about then. Uh, we did Cub Scouts together from Tigers through Weeblo's, went on to do Boy Scouts together. Both eagled gone quite quite a ways back. Right, right. I mean, what one of those twenty yeah twenty year friendships kind of a yeah, thing? Like yeah, yeah. And we're only twenty seven. I know <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Dang, you know, sometimes I forget that how long we've known each other. Yeah, but it's it's. I've known you since I was seven, <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. six. <laughs> yeah, I could have been on that footage. Yeah, <laughs> you could have been. You could have been. Okay, so you were you, you found your first image of you holding a camcorder, uh, two thousand one. 2002 uh from there how did you further get into like film and, and all of this so like i said, i think it was uh parents encouraging me you know like so they got me my first camera
1: probably in about four. it was a digital camera two gigabyte um you know sd card um and you know they had a old like i think it's like a high eights a tape um camcorder and that's okay, why so said-
0: you're gonna have to talk to me like i don't even know what a camera is okay because so- i'll be honest I don't really know.
1: <laughs> so I mean so the high 8s camcorder was like you know the the whole like tape deck thing it was it was like a tape it was like a cassette tape you throw in you have so much footage and you had the option to record over it or over old footage you know so my parents had a stash of it in the you know bedroom I would take it out and mess around with it and then probably about 0304 they got me my first digital camera and then probably in 2000 and I will say it was nine they got me my first like digitalized camcorder from like target for like a couple hundred bucks you know so mm-hmm. uh built-in memory uh filmed in 720 first you know has probably 10 15 hours worth of footage on there um and that was pretty cool and that was pretty rad yeah, solid upgrade yeah yeah, there yeah. We go.
0: getting you right into it
1: yeah yeah and then i upgraded to um a sony a7s2 in college you know and that was a, a fairly expensive camcorder my first camcorder i bought with my own money
0: was it was um, in college?
1: Yeah, it was in college. It was uh during the SF State? Um, and then I got a job in film, essentially, you know, working for film. So I realized you only buy your own shit, you know. You <laughs> <laughs> your your employer buys it. And I found out through school that you actually a lot of people don't own their stuff; they rent it. So oh, interesting. A lot of companies own their equipment, you know, own equipment and they rent it out to you. So you actually because the because you know the thing is is that technology is always changing, so it doesn't make yeah. sense. And that's what I was finding out yeah, was that technology is always changing to the point where. It doesn't make sense to own, you know, your own equipment. you know, like if you're especially with like think about iPhones, you know, uh, iPhones have um, almost, you know, more power in them than for filming than some of the camcores
0: you buy at Target for a couple hundred bucks, you know? Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, literally in our lifetime, as, as you mentioned, you were recording on tapes. to so then going digital. Oh, yeah. That, that spanned just our our lives oh yeah dude it's it's funny when uh 50 year old dudes i work with are telling me oh, you don't know what a
1: tape uh, you know you don't know what a tape recorder is i'm like uh, yeah i do <laughs> you know <laughs> i wasn't using them
0: but i know what it is like, yes uh we do know what a floppy disk is and for those of you who don't it's the save button on microsoft word <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, if, <laughs> they're still showing that image That's it, it, it turned is. into
1: an icon versus uh <laughs> actual application so yeah right
0: remember the pound it used to be a pound symbol now it's a hashtag yes completely changed yes the new thing it's uh, rebranded. So. Oh yes, <laughs> marketing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so with your upgraded camera, uh, so you're going, getting older, you're now in college. What, 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 what is film, film and editing, and and, and all of this like to study in school? You know, very disappointing. <laughs> you oh, know, really? Okay. Going going
1: to school for filmmaking was probably. Uh, one of the most heart crushing things because I was, uh, I thought I was getting ahead of the game. Because I saw a lot of people, you know, you always hear these stories from, you know, famous directors and famous actors and filmmakers saying they, uh, you know, quit college or they quit school and they, you know, worked a diner job until they finally got recognized and they got their big break. And it's yeah, the classic. Yeah, love yeah, story, yeah. So and then I, yeah, so I thought reverse psychology was to go to school, get good grades, get a good job, and then I will get recognized, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, I think what was sucked about school, uh, going to get a four-year degree out of it, was that um, three years out of five, I didn't spend a single time in you know in doing filmmaking. You so just, I you lost didn't make any like films. No, I did because um, at that point it was all general education. So it was like high school two uh, You're getting caught up on your science, your math, your English, mm-hmm. um, and then as a college student now I'm trying to pay for college or make my way through college. Now I'm trying to work part time. So. Oh, okay. um, and then you know, I obviously I went the routes of the domesticated route, right? Getting a girlfriend, you know, settling in that kind of thing, which didn't take away from my film experience at all. But um, between you know having a home life and having you know school to focus on and having a part time job, just didn't really make. I didn't prioritize filmmaking at that point in time. I thought I was going to get a lot of that prioritization in school, mm-hmm. um, but then I went from my four year experience when I finally was able to kind of focus in that major. Even then, it was a lot of sitting in lecture halls no application studying film. So yeah, what does that mean? So it meant we sat there, we literally watched a movie and then you would critique the film. we well, not even critique. It, it was, um, I couldn't even tell you what we talked about. I think it was just like film. You Did you Rotten th- yeah, Tomatoes it? Yeah, yeah, up, no, up, yeah, 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 yeah. Basically it was like, uh, it was basically kind of like, um, we, we had talked about a certain section. Like I remember one day in class, in my intro class, we were, uh, watching Moulin Rouge with, uh, Nicole Kidman and, um, Ian uh, e. McGregor, and the whole section was on film editing. And because it won, you know, the Academy Award in the early 2000s for Best Film Editing. I'm going to pretend like I knew that. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we had to watch it. And I thought it was a good – I'd never seen it before. I thought it was a great movie. I went home and showed my wife now, <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that film, um, thinking, oh, my God, this is so good. I would not have found out about this film if I wasn't in film school. But I didn't really – you know, learn they didn't go deep dive into what made it special or anything like that. It was just like, hey, this film won best editing in 2002 or whatever. Uh, we're talking about film editing. Here you go. So that was year really, yeah, that was year one in the filmmaking. Um, but then my second year was when we started, say, or give you a building name your building and I'll edit this <laughs> yeah. <a> building after, <laughs> yeah. after Mr. Gilmore yeah. and I will change this. Yeah, yeah, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, my second year, uh, practicing film because I was year one, year one was a lot of you know film history. And diving the terminology which was cool like i gotta learn some terminology but uh year two is when we started Wait, can i can i ask you, is
0: there a difference between like a film a movie and the cinema do you know in my
1: opinion no yeah you know, like 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 <laughs> okay, i was hoping like, you were gonna
0: like, say that because I, I was like oh, i feel like those should all be the same thing yeah but i you I, know
1: uh for maybe nervous let me think um film you know you, you said cinema film and then uh film just make, movie just movie, movie. um no a good not. old moving picture no no i i think it should again the branding you know the branding thing you know as <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, with the times yeah going yeah to m- the moving moving picture turns into movie you know so <laughs> gotcha let's drop the moving part and just say movie um <laughs> so yeah so if year two so the first year was a lot of you know sit down lecture kind of stuff year two was all about let's do like uh application classes which was, what I was super stoked about um I discovered for my, you know, because you only have two semesters. And what sucks is being a senior and having your last year at school,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that you only have so many classes you can take. You have like, you know, fifteen classes you can t- you can take, that all have an emphasis in something. So they have like a sound editing and mixing class. They had, um, advanced lighting editing. Um, they actually had film. You know, classes where it was the actual
0: film, like of a you know, you you would tape oh, on well, like old school old like school film Kodak film we used to take yeah. to Rite Aid to get processed to get yeah, but the even whole yeah,
1: the the real thing yeah, the, the, the real thing, yeah still worth for the real thing and then you would actually have to edit and snip it and do that whole thing. They oh, had wow. the digital. They had a phone um mobile filmmaking class where you'd, you used uh, find out how to use your smartphone to make film. Interesting. I feel like that class has got to be. That's that class is cl- up in honestly Honestly, uh, I had a friend in that class. I didn't personally take it. I had a friend in that class, and he was telling me all about um, about it. And he was showing me all the features of my phone I didn't even know I had, you know? Whoa. So. Like, what? Was there any. Oh, like, you know, cause people, because people hear about, you know, if you ever watch the iPhone conferences, you hear about, you know, oh, 24 francs per second and 16, blah, 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 you know? So. I think a lot of people assume that's just like, oh, it just does it automatically. No, you actually go into your settings and you know, oh, click click enable? click your camera and then click on what frames per second you want to use and what to record in. Interesting. That I didn't know about but anyway, so that second year I took um advanced lighting, I took sound editing and mixing, okay, directing so hold on. directing visual. Lighting.
0: S- what what you gotta you gotta fill me in on this. Okay, so advanced okay, what is that mean
1: yeah so advanced lighting is essentially there's different types of lighting and filmmaking used for different scenarios and um and basically like you can shoot like you know you have your, your kinoflobes kind of lights which are your giant like long tubes like i okay. think like kind of like fluorescent light bulbs like in my office right now gotcha. um that kind of thing um that you have your um You know, your Edison-type bulbs, that kind of stuff, you know? So you have these same types of lights that produce different types of temperatures, you know, so more cold or more warm, um, LED, non-LED. So are you talking about physical temperature or, like, the ambiance kind of temperature? Like, the ambiance type of temperature, not physical. Well, I mean, some of them are physical. Like, some of them are uh, physical temperature. There's some Mm -hmm. lights that produce a lot of heat when you touch them. They're hot to the touch. Um, And they take a while to cool down. They also produce more power. So you have to think about your power situation
0: on a stage deck and on on a sound stage. Yeah, that'd be tough if one of the bulbs got a little too hot and set everything on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be, you know, a little bit tough to put on a production. No, exactly. So,
1: um, and that's how a lot of fires happen, you know? And so, (laughs) yeah. yeah. So, I took that class and I was finding out while I was going to school that um, I wouldn't know who my professors were when signing up. Because, like... They wouldn't tell you? (laughs) They wouldn't tell me because they didn't have any idea who was teaching that semester. Whoa. They would put put out the class and... um, they wouldn't assign the teacher until like the week before because they're still trying to find out who's going to teach that class.
0: That feels very late to do that.
1: I, I had a teacher walk. I had two teachers. So I took uh, four of these hands-on classes uh, between the two semesters my last year. So I only had four you know classes to really pick from out of 15 that I wanted to emphasize in. And two of them out of the four had selected their professor the night before.
0: The night before? Yeah.
1: I would walk in the school, like my first class of that semester, and they Bluntly just say, hey, listen, I don't know what we're doing yet. I was given the curriculum from, you know, this last professor who I called last night when I got the phone call, I'd be teaching this class for the semester, and we're just going to kind of roll into it, we're going to play it by ear.
0: Dang. It
1: would be the most frustrating thing in the world because, you know, you're investing time and money into this class, and you don't feel like your teachers as invested because, you know, they were just sprung on at the last second. Yeah, they
0: didn't even have an option Yeah, to it, 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 it kind
1: of sucks because you're, you're in an artsy field, and when the people aren't as passionate as you are... Um, kind of sucks the the life out of you, you know so yeah i was it, it became um it became work it didn't become fun or artsy anymore it became work and that's honestly kind of built the whole philosophy of like um you don't want to do what you love for work sometimes you know and that was that's where i was kind of getting at with filmmaking i don't want to do what I love for work all the time because it would become work later on in life um, okay does it have to uh, you know it doesn't have to but you know but uh, you know i used to do filmmaking for a creative outlet that's what i was learning in school so i used to do filmmaking as a creative outlet i liked doing it with my friends you know i didn't like I, that's what so that's I, I i kind of pivoted my direction a bit because i used to like to do cinematography and directing as a fun thing with my friends we'd collaborate it was a good time it away from me to really stress, get some creative flow kind of use it as like a therapeutic outlet in a sense yeah. But then when I was going to school, I was realizing, you know, I'm working with a bunch of, no offense, douchebags who think they're better than me and everything. You're kind of competing all the time. Everyone wants to be the director. Everybody wants to be the cinematographer. And when you're the director and you're the cinematographer, everyone just wants to come after you. And they want to challenge your creative vision. I mean, they all care about the project at the end of the day. Yeah. But I was finding it to be more political than I wanted it to be. It didn't become creative anymore. It didn't become fun. It became work. And um, I wasn't liking that. So... Um, that's why when I, you know, when, that's why I was kind of thankful I got my current position doing some more sound stuff because sound is still in the realm of what I like to do. Um, but so then this is right up your alley. Yeah. But then it didn't, you know, I have work and this is a fun, this is, that keeps me engaged the entire day. I enjoy what I'm doing. It's still in the whole media field, but it isn't like the Hollywood filmmaking style that I was, you know, I was kind of dreaming about when going to elementary, middle kind of school, high school kind of stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. No, that's tough. So when you first started getting into this as a kid, mm-hmm. what drew you to it? Why films? And, Again, and why th- more movies too? Mm-hmm. Like not just filming of things, but not TV. Uh I mean even now there's like YouTube and I mean granted that was that came later. Right. Um but yeah, what drew drew you to this medium?
1: You know, um therapy, you know? It was not not like me going to a therapist and talking some about my feelings, but it's, it's um therapeutic you know uh, the,
0: the films the filming movies yeah the
1: the, the the whole filming process editing something together like i remember <laughs> for all the 2000s kids watching this you know you probably remember when youtube first came out and there's a lot of these you know amv videos they you know the whole oh, yeah. animated music video people would take their favorite movies or video games and they would come you know take their favorite you know goth rock song <laughs> at the time like you know <laughs> effinescence or something and they would uh you know edit together and take a music video yeah, throw it video. over tony hawk yeah exactly and um i kind of did that back in the day and the way I, when i was editing it it was kind of taking my personal feelings about a certain song i really liked i resonated with and then hashing them with certain characters that um i felt i resonated with at that point in my life can
0: i can i guess the game
1: you, you you probably know it, Frankie. Is it Kingdom of Hearts? Oh, totally. You know, <laughs> yes. So, so 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 many characters. I was nervous. I'll be honest. Yeah, I was yeah. like, if I get
0: this wrong, this gonna that's it's yeah. gonna be recorded.
1: Well, it's 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 because those <laughs> characters to me, um, you know, because yeah, what drew you to that game? I've always been curious. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and it's funny because um. <laughs> my buddy Jordan is the one who recommended the game to me. I always said, you know, fuck Game Hearts. It's for kids, you know. And I'm a kid, you know. I'm like eight years old. And I'm <laughs> yeah, this. It's for us. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was geared towards me. I was saying, screw this, you know. So, um, but really what drew me to that game, I think, after I started playing it, was really just, you know, there was, there was some characters in that game that went through some hardships. And I think it taught me a lot of life lessons in terms of how to deal with a lot of my own home life stuff and how... These characters kind of get through things, you know, and it's cheesy. The game was really cheesy, but I think it had a message that resonated with me. And so when you're doing film editing, I'm taking these characters I'm resonating with and putting it with songs I'm feeling with. It was a good creative outlet, kind of combining both what I'm going through, you know, grabbing a song, grabbing a video, taking some, I mean, my passion with film editing and filmmaking and putting it all together, like, it was fun stuff, you know? No, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh,
0: combination of... The personal aspect with also the creative aspect mm-hmm. which is also personal yeah but just this beautiful amalgamation of of feelings mm-hmm. so with the game i only really know of S- sora yeah sora, who did you resonate most with was it sora uh i mean i know they have the rest like the disney cast i don't know if there's any person in the disney universe that that you resonated with at the time or still do
1: so um you know i th- kind of reflect you know i kind of resonated with the the Roxas character quite a bit and not in the sense you know I mean, okay his, so you're gonna have to so so his whole you know his whole story in the game and i'm without getting to the whole king hearts lore because you could find pages of wikipedia about this and you're gonna be going into a whole rabbit hole still not understand what the fuck was going on you know but um basically a character was never meant to exist you know his whole you know existence is like you know i exist but i was never supposed to exist that was the, you know the whole existential crisis kind of thing That really resonated with me, you know, going through, you know, (laughs) the puberty era, you know, like, why do I exist? What's my purpose? What's my reasoning? You know, like, why am I even here? And that was kind of his whole arc in the game and kind of coming to learn to accept the idea of, like, I don't have to understand, you know, where I came from or why I came from, but I can find joy and beauty in these things like right now. I have friends. The whole idea of friendship, like that that whole series, is like, you know, it doesn't really matter where I'm at as long as I have my friends with me or my family with me. Which is, I think a lot of people can kind of agree with this, like probably a focal point in their life. That's probably one of their core values is family and friends. Mm-hmm. But I think for me going through elementary and middle school, that was more important because, you know, I was going through some hard stuff, you know, and I was going through, um, you know, I was going through the whole idea of death at an early age, you know. And so that whole, like, what's the whole point of living if you're going to be dead kind of thing kind of shook me up a bit, quite a bit as a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's who I was ignited like, with the most in that series.
0: Okay, so you brought up a couple ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and if at any point you want me to cut it out or we can change topics, please mm-hmm. just say it. I'll jump an open um, book. You can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I mean, so I've appreciated. We've had such great talks, like when we go throwing and just walking around, and just in general. Um, so you were thinking about what's the purpose of life mm-hmm. if you're just going to? It's just going to end. Mm-hmm. What What did you think then, and what do you think now, and how has that changed over time, and are there any major points along the way that maybe? Pushed you in a different direction. I know that was a big question. So yeah, maybe yeah, like yeah, yeah, When you so, were when you were then, you resonated mm-hmm. with a character who mm-hmm. didn't mean to exist. Mm-hmm. What kind of what brought that about? What do you think? You know, um, I think, I think a lot had to do with the, my dad's deployment,
1: you know, um, overseas. Because you know, there's a lot of people who I grew up with, you know, who I mean, I, it's weird, because like I know them, I grew up with them when I was young, but you know, as I get older, the memories become fuzzy of these people who I've met. But all part of my dad's units and them passed away overseas. And it was one of those things where it became like a yearly celebration, you know, like not a celebration. That's kind of the wrong word, but like uh, like a remembrance day every single year on their anniversary of their death. And so and growing my father, who has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder over all this. And just to preface, your father was in the army for how many years? 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, 20 years army started off as technically he was reservist but went active after 9/11 and he was probably active four to six years oh, wow. so, so the last stretch of his career mm-hmm. and so and he was deployed in Iraq in 04 for those who don't know my story and he got hit by an IED uh, which is a explosive unit um, you know roadside bomb <laughs> and uh, flipped his jeep lost his right deltoid muscle um, and he lost some friends you know throughout the year he was there for 11 months. Um, I know I've heard some people talk about how, they're only overseas for four to six months and you know, eleven, yeah, 11 months is a yeah, long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Time. Supposed to be a year, but he was almost done with his full year, then he, you know, got hit in that accident. So Things I think wow. about is like fighting for a year of your life, not knowing you. And then the whole thing too was that they were training Iraqi citizens to become their own military. So they're trying to train military, but the whole thing about training people, you know, in the country, you know, that's going through terrorism is that you don't know who's really the enemy. You know, there's people. That's how some of these people got killed. Was that people you thought you trusted, yeah, you know, but were actually you know spies or whatever, and would you know put out the hit,
0: essentially yeah. some of these guys. And that makes total sense then to continue to having and experiencing PTSD is mm-hmm. you're constantly on guard you yeah. don't know who you can trust exactly
1: exactly so um or even
0: just walking around like i mean the there's what mines and the IED and you don't know if you're driving on a safe road that, yeah. that may or may not
1: no totally yeah exactly so with my dad coming back with this whole PTSD deal you know and the whole you know it just it just made me question this this whole thing about you know life, I might even say I questioned it a lot. It was just something I was going through. It was something I was experiencing. I don't even know what I was thinking at that point in time. Really, it was just more. This must be life. If you know, you you go through a traumatic experience, you you know you there's a fallout from that. You have to try to recover. You know, you're you know you're stumbling in life. Um, you're trying to figure out where do I land again? You know, and so mm. I got to watch my dad's journey through that. But one of the things I was kind of discovering watching my dad was that I was also absorbing some of his behavior because i'm a kid i'm you know i'm probably i was seven years old i think when he left the first time yeah. uh when he started and i you know at an sf for a few months then he was he came home for a few months then he was gone for another six or seven months in utah so when you're saying stationed in sf you mean he lived in yeah they, they, they on they, the base yeah yeah they, they had him Put up in a, little, a nice little penthouse, I think. Essentially, is what it was. Like, oh, they, yeah, yeah. I think they. I think they <laughs> treated treat him well. You know, I don't really remember. We we talked about it recently, but we were both drunk, so I don't really remember. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So he was stationed, you know, stationed up in SF, Washington, the bridge, and then he was over in Utah doing some more guard duty stuff um, for several months, and then he came home for a few more months, and then he went to a Iraq for eleven months so I kind of lost that time. My dad was really knowing what kind of man he was before all this stuff went down. And so I'm, again, I'm probably like eight years old and nine, maybe nine years old. when he comes back from Iraq and, uh, I'm watching him go through these, these this PTSD experience. Right. And I'm um, watching him freak out over things that normal people don't freak out about. Like, um, you know, fireworks on the 4th
0: of July. Oh, that would be terrible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The first, I remember the first year he freaked out over fireworks. Um, we were, you know, in someone's, uh, we were his co-worker's house mm-hmm. and you know it was a neighborhood you know suburban neighborhood kind of uh, fourth of july and they're setting off fireworks in the streets and everything and my dad was you know and while everyone else is in the streets watching my dad is sitting in the back creeping into the house you know um yeah so he was surely walking yeah around. yeah like gripping his you know gripping the shoulder he got injured on and everything and so i'm watching this behavior and i'm kind of gained drawn to that mm. and um it wasn't until probably years later i was finding out from thera- therapists that they've been doing studies on secondary post-traumatic stress disorder oh, and interesting. so um kind of being this whole deal of people absorbing you, you you're you not seeing you didn't experience the initial stress that caused your ptsd but you're watching someone else go through this stuff and you're kind of absorbing that behavior yeah, it's a whole so how, so, how they lash out at people, how they behave around certain things. So, if I'm watching my dad for years go through these like nightmares, uh, and he's describing these nightmares to me, I may conjure up something in my own head that might give me nightmares like that. You know, yeah. um, I found in middle school, I was gripping my right shoulder quite a bit where my dad got injured. You know, every time I get stressed out, even today, every time I get stressed out, I'm going to my right shoulder and I'm just kind of. It, 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 kind of it kind of hangs there. How I respond to certain things, you know, like I get frustrated over things that are, you know, not that big of a deal, you know, mm. when I'm when I'm upset. And my father is kind of the same way, you know, he'd get uh, get upset over something small that triggered that PTSD and I would behave the same way. So it's, it's taking a lot of years to unravel all that and kind of, you know, kind of deal with it, kind of learn to live with it. But I to, I understand that it's not my trauma I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with someone else's
0: trauma. Learn to let, drop off that baggage and just press forward with all of it. And that's so tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Like with my with my own experience with eating disorders and that running through my family, Mm -hmm. um, at least for me, I had to learn that I had to focus on saving myself Mm -hmm. from what I had taken almost as a secondhand smoke kind of a thing um, from the habits, overall life philosophy and having to work through those and kind of give up the idea of saving someone else. Yeah. so that way I could save myself.
1: And that, and that actually brings up a whole thing there, too, because, like, that was my deal. That was uh, something I had to do was, uh, you know, I was trying to save other people, and that was kind of naturally something I found out in therapy was that I was uh, tiled The Family Hero, someone who's willing to put all their baggage on the sidelines so they can deal with everyone else's baggage. And that was my unit in the family. And everyone had their unit in the family, but, again, we were seeing family therapists. You know, I was getting pulled out of classes in middle school to go to family therapy
0: once a week. I mean, first of all, it is incredible that, You were able to do that, like that. You had the support and the ability to go see a therapist and continue to see a therapist. Yeah, well,
1: not without you know. We had some fight with the school districts about that because the school was getting pissed off that we were leaving class. But Mm -hmm. going back to family values, you know, and being certain, being drawn to certain core values, family was a big one. My in my in my home, they found that my parents decided you know our family is more important than going to school. Mm -hmm. Uh, When my dad came back from leave from Iraq, so he had. Crazy enough, a month before his accidents over there, where he lost his shoulder muscle, came home for three weeks of leave. I think it was even two. Like oh, wow. within two and a half weeks of before his accidents. Like a month before his accident, he's home, hanging out in the house. Then he goes back to Iraq for a week and a half or two. Then he gets hit by the IED and he shipped back home. Uh, I remember us getting into a fight with a teacher, and I'm not going to say the person's name, just again, because they're watching, relatives are watching or listening, whatever. Um, but this, I can always edit it out if yeah, you want yeah, to say it. No, no, no. It will no, no, no. work good. I'm going make it easier for you because I understand how this, all this works. It's, it's, it's a pain in the yeah, ass. You no, know, I spent so much time on yeah, yeah, that yeah. first one. Yeah, so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So um, they actually, you know, because there's a whole political end to all of this, you know, back in 03, 04 with the whole Operation Iraqi Movement stuff. A lot of people didn't, you know, think what we were doing was right over there. So uh, I'm not going to say I agree or disagree with that because that was before my time you know i was just living in the whole war aspect i didn't even care about the politics my dad was gone
0: this is just your experience going through it yeah
1: exactly you know and again i was too young to even form an, an opinion you know if my if i did form an opinion it was my parents opinion yeah i didn't have an opinion mm-hmm. so the te- but obviously the teacher had strong feelings about the whole my dad being in iraq thing you know and oh. not necessarily towards my dad but the whole movement of being in iraq so i feel like i speaking on my own personal experience, and not I, I haven't talked to this person about this, so I have no idea if uh, they would agree with this. But I think they were lashing out a lot of their frustration with the politics about it onto me and my family a bit. Because my mom came up to my teachers and right. said, you know, in the school and said, hey, uh, the father's coming back for, you know, two weeks leave. We're going to pull the kids out of school. We want to put them in independent study for the two weeks so they can spend time with their dad. Yeah. And most of the people agreed. But my teacher, my my classroom teacher, didn't agree with this, and she thought I was getting robbed of an education, and thought I was irresponsible to pull out of school. But my mom stood up and said, "My husband can go back to Iraq and die, you know, if they're yeah. so. I want my kids to spend as much time with their father as possible." Yeah. Uh, this is before, you know, video chats and everything. I, I didn't really – I did not talk to my dad in over almost, you know, eight, ten months at that point in time, you know. so yeah, He's just gone. He's just gone, you know. I didn't talk to him over the phone. I didn't do video chats. The closest I got was probably some piece of mail that my mom had created, <laughs> you know. Did your mom write letters? Oh, she – she you know, she, she wrote stuff and she sent stuff from my dad on to our birthdays. I found this out years later, you know. Um Wow. Things that my you know, I thought came from my father, I found that actually came from my mom. She was she was the hero of the family while he was gone, you know, like on, on the home front. And she was still dealing with the whole
0: she was still doing military stuff as well. Yeah, on top of just also dealing with your husband being in this situation, raising you two mm-hmm. and the military stuff. And and work full time, you know. So she was
1: yes. yeah. So she was classroom mom, she was, you know, stay at home mom, she was work home mom, she was military mom, and she also worked with the military on getting people Ready for the in the events if someone passed away, what do you do?
0: That is so much responsibility,
1: yeah. So, I don't think my mom worked, I don't think my mom got more than two or three hours sleepy tonight, you know. And she would sleep, you know, while we were at school during the day, you know, when she wasn't helping us in the classroom, yeah. Because I remember your mom
0: being in classrooms,
1: yeah, yeah she, yeah, she was there, she was there. So, um, real quick, just finishing up the whole, you know, teacher situation, my dad, she disagreed with the independent study thing, and my dad went back and he got blown up two weeks later then she felt like crap, you know? The <laughs> so,
0: teacher? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it taught, her, it taught her a lesson, you know? So not everyone was so agreeing of us going to therapy, you know, or us having time with the family during my adolescent years going through school and everything. Um, there's a lot of people who let us do this, th- the therapy thing and go once a week, or see my dad for two weeks. There's people who support that, but there's always that one or two Debbie Downers in the crowd who don't get it and want to kind of bump in and Oppress their opinion onto you on how to
0: you know raise your kids or how to um prioritize your family's values Mm -hmm. do you think that the because i mean at that time the overall outlook of therapy was incredibly different than it is today Mm -hmm. do you think that that has impacted teachers and if you were to go through that situation again today how do you imagine that that would go differently or would it would it go differently i think today
1: it's a bit different like we live in the world where i think everyone has depression everyone has anxiety and um and I, I mean, I don't want to speak on anyone. You know, everyone's going through their own stuff. Everyone's just got to go through their own ordeal. But I think today, I think a lot of teachers would probably be, I think internally, they're probably thinking, you only need to go to therapy. You just need to suck it up. And, you know, you need, you need to do the assignments or you need to move forward with it. What you're doing is not that big of a deal. But I think today there's a lot of holdback from saying things like that, mm-hmm. that you have to let people go to therapy if they want to go to therapy. You have to let people skip school they want to skip school for the day, you know? And I mean, I've seen, I've seen some kids today, you know, like a lot of them say they do, you know, a lot of them say they're going through something or they're not feeling well so they can get out of school. Like they're seeing it as an angle now to get out doing something they don't want to do. You know, even here, I'm managing kids that that work. I, I, I work, I manage people and I, you know, hire people on and, my brother does the same thing in his work and we you know we both talk about it and it's like dude like you know we're only 5 years up you know we're only within less than 10 years apart from people you know who are going through senior year right now in high school mm-hmm. but a lot of them don't have the same drive a lot of them you know try to uh get out of things they don't want to do and i think that's a difference of generation you know i think people want to do things they want to do uh but there's also that responsibility of doing things you you do anyway, even though you don't want to do it. Yeah. Because sometimes those things you need to because Because it's happen. the right thing to do. You know, when I was still going to therapy and everything like that, when I was going to school, I understood I was skipping class for a day, but I was still doing the assignments from home. Mm-hmm. I was still playing catch up. I wasn't skipping school. I was skipping that lecture. And I had to work three times harder at home because I was missing that lecture in school. Yeah. You made up for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, to, I think not a lot of people today. Again, I'm assuming things, you know, I, that's you the know. one thing I want to preface is like I don't want to make the assumption because so I'm just observing, you know. I, I'm an observer. I'm observing things in my own worldview. Mm-hmm.
0: From your limited experience. Yeah. Like, from, from limited experience. Yeah. I live That's I in my own little
1: bubble. Everyone lives in their own little bubble. This is what I'm experiencing in my little bubble right now. And so, I, you know, if people want to talk to me about it later, have a conversation about it. I'm totally open to it. Um, and your phone number is no, just, Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, mess, hit me DM me yeah. on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say you got any plugs, you got any shows coming yeah. up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I have my own little I have my own little bubble. This is the things I just been experiencing. A lot I feel like a lot of people like today just, you know, try to use a lot of their trauma um I'm using quotations here, to get out of work they don't want to do. Um and as someone I mean And someone like, you know, someone like me, i you know, my dad's trauma was just one layer of it. You know, I had secondary, the the therapist said I had secondary PTSD, Mm -hmm. but that was, you know, secondary. I didn't experience that firsthand. That was secondary. But I experienced my own other trauma a few years later with my mom's alcoholism, you know, and I experienced Mm -hmm. that whole ride for several years until she, you know, took her own life, you know, and so. Um, I had a lot of baggage. I was going to school. With my mom being an alcoholic. I went, I went to college. and My mom was, you know, when she, you know, had killed herself, and she had passed away the week before. Uh, it was like it was like the week of spring break. She had passed away, and I went back to school the next week when we when we were when classes back in session. And a lot of a lot of my classmates were like, "Dude, your mom just died. We didn't expect you to be here." I'm like, "What? What am I supposed to do? Stay at home and?" Soul can be upset about it, or, like, or get off my ass and do something about it because I'm almost done with school. Why would I quit school, or why would I? Why would I use it as an excuse not to get things done that need to get done? You know, things I can skip out. I can skip the gym. I love going to the gym, but maybe I don't feel like going to the gym. I can skip that. Yeah. Maybe I don't feel like um, making darren tonight. I can get fast food instead. Um, but things like I made an obligation to go to school. I made an obligation to go to work. I need to get these things done. You know, I had my my brief period of being upset. I can still be upset, but life's got to go on, you know? So you can carry the baggage with you. And Kim Hart's quote The hurt can stay with you, but you just got to move forward with the hurt. You got to learn to live with the hurt, you know? Not mm-hmm. use this as an excuse all the time to get out of doing things you don't want to do. Like the hurt's always going to be with you. You just got to learn to deal and live with it. Yeah.
0: It sounds like you got hurt. You didn't stop living.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it still hurts today, you know. Like, uh, I mean, I don't think about it every single day. It it just gets easier to live with, you know. And it took me, I heard that the first time when my mom had passed away from a lot of people, especially my dad's unit, who would say, "You gotta learn to deal. You gotta learn to live with the hurt." And I thought it was corny. I didn't really understand what that meant. But like, you know, like six years later now, I learned. You know, I understand what that means. I had to learn to deal with the hurt. It's gonna hurt every day. There's there's times, you know, it's gonna sneak up out of nowhere. There's times where. I'm at the beach, you know, enjoying the day with some friends or family, and the beach is my mom's favorite place to go, and on most days, it doesn't bother me, but there's that one day where it just hits me out of nowhere, and the hurt creeps in. So, it's just learning
0: to deal and live with the hurt. And how often, if, if you're cool, still mm-hmm. talking about like, how often does that happen? I haven't lost someone close to me yet, mm-hmm. and I know it, I mean, it's gonna happen, <laughs> or I'll go first, and then everyone else will feel this pain, yeah. but what is that like and how yeah how have you found the ability to live with this yeah like, how does that work What is that good like so i think people think that
1: death hurts the most like someone passes away that hurts the most i to an extent i agree but i also disagree i think the thing that hurt the most was watching uh, my mom suffer and going through her own pain um, because she was dealing with the fallouts of the military, the sounds like there's some trauma. There was some childhood trauma my mom was going through that she never dealt with. Um, I can only make assumptions of what happened based off of what limited information family was willing to share with me at the time. Uh, but it sounds like my mom had a lot of baggage to deal with. And there's the whole supports of being in the military, having you know being the hero at home. Then dad comes home, and now he's the hero because he was the Iraqi war veteran. And so you have these two different types of heroes, but people recognize the. The war hero versus the mom hero, especially at this point in time, back in the mid two thousands, and so yeah, the one was a public hero. Yeah, either. yeah, and I my you know my dad was getting you know his picture hung up in churches with his purple heart ribbon and all this kind of stuff. He was getting recognized at the schools and also you know, but my mom was the the hero in the background doing all the work. She was the one organizing families. She had her own trauma. She 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 told a soldier his family once that, uh, your son's gonna be okay. You know he's gonna you know, he's gonna come back home, um. Just fine, you know. And she was asked a question by the soldier's father. Like, I went to Vietnam so my son didn't have to go to war. Why is my son going to war now? My mom had to deal with that question.
0: That is a heavy question
1: to lay on someone. Yeah, and that's why she said he's going to be okay. And he was unfortunately one of the soldiers who didn't make it back out. He was one of the first ones to have passed away within months after being overseas over there. And um, my mom had to deal with that for years. And she dealt with it until the day she died. And uh, there's a lot of things like that that kind of happened with her being a part of this Operation Family Readiness. Operation Family Readiness? Is that the... That's the organization she was working with in the military. So Operation okay. Family Readiness, which again, prepares soldiers, and families, for when they go overseas. Like what happens in the events that your spouse passes away over there? What happens with your finances? Things like that. How are you guys going to live off of one household income versus two or with the limited military income? So that was the stuff she was dealing with. She had her own office Whoa. at the uh, <laughs> the armory even. So she's
0: she was literally facing death every day with these families not
1: every you know again it was it was the it was the whole preparedness thing it was about getting people ready you're you're thinking about it discussing
0: it that if your person dies while in the back of your mind you also have someone over there
1: yeah you also yeah she's you know she's helping other families but she's also dealing with her own family at the same time you know she's dealing Mm -hmm. with my dad being gone what this happens to her and then again, she was still mom full time. She was still classroom mom full time. She was still working full time, you know. So when dad came home and he was the hero in the forefront and she lost all that recognition, it hurt. And then uh, the family therapy told her, you need to back off and let dad take over. He's home now. He's had no time with the family this entire time. Time to let dad take back over. And so that crushed her because that was yeah. kind of her whole her whole mantra is being mom. You know, she wanted to be mom to us. And I think, I think what she interpreted in her mind was that the boys don't need mom anymore because they're 12 or 13 years old. They're going through puberty and they need dad. So okay. I don't think she ever learned how to take care of herself. The whole, you know, we were talking about this earlier in our conversation, the whole idea of, take, of self-care.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She never learned that. So her how she dealt with all of her emotions and how she dealt with the trauma was, I'm gonna go drink it in the bottle that one glass of Tomas wine tonight is going to turn into two or three glasses then a bottle then multiple bottles um so with her passing i you know before she passed away i spent 6 7 years of my life trying to take care of mom uh, the whole and actually mm-hmm. I, I want to trace it back to even earlier because she, she was she was a little bit heavier she wasn't fat you know but she was not this swimsuit sports illustrated model that she, i think that she might she needed to be for my dad okay. and so Um, That she she thought she needed to be. That she thought she needed to be because, you know, there's this this image out there of what you're supposed to look like, especially for, you know, for, you know, especially you're creeping into your 40s, you know, like I think there's that whole self-conscious thing going on there. And so for her, she decided to have a gastro bypass surgery, which means that we're going to cut you open and cut your stomach in half. And you're gonna eat with only half a stomach from now on. Mm-hmm. Well, this operation is very dangerous, and it can lead to serious health issues. And she started off with ulcers when she got back. So she lost the weight. She lost a lot of weight, mm-hmm. but then you know she got stomach ulcers, and then she went to the hospital, and they pumped her with some drugs. You know, and that felt pretty good. Then she comes home. She loses the drugs, which is that feeling of that 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 um, hurt in her. You know her. Um, ulcer pain was still there because of all the stress and stuff. So she would use, she said she used alcohol to help numb it. So mm-hmm. the alcohol was helping her not feel anything from the pain in emotionally and physically. And so that's how she became an alcoholic, was because, you know, she had done this operation, which led to point B, which led to point C. So yeah. I watched that for years, six years. Um, I would like to say, like probably oh nine two thousand ten. 2010 up until her passing in 2017 so yeah. i remember coming home from school and watching you know finding balls in, in random spots she was she tried hiding it because she wanted to present herself that she was okay and she was doing that for a long time with friends you, you know your, your mom would probably even um you know say that she was times sort where of my mom felt a little off and over years over the years my mom, my mom had pushed away all of her friends mm-hmm. friends would call i remember friends would be calling the house asking where my mom was at and I would say she's not available because she's passed out drunk on the couch. Uh, I'm finding bottles and hats up in the closets. I'm finding bottles in the crawl space. I'm finding bottles, you know, in the well in the backyard. Uh, really hiding everything. And um, I remember there was times where she would have an Irish coffee made and take us to school, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. She took my best friend to school and I, you know, to Livermore High School. We, She drove us, ha- you know, five miles downtown, across town, drunk. We didn't know that because we were, you know, freshmen in high school. We didn't yeah, know. Yeah, we were trying to get to school in the morning. Yeah, yeah, we we didn't know what was going down. So really the pain is really when you um, the, the real pain is not when someone passes away, it's watching them go down this path and you're scared every single day. Is this the day we're gonna get the phone call that this person's passed away? You know, my mom's gone. You know, that was that was the real pain. It was, you know, knowing that phone call's gonna come. You know it's coming, it's just when it's gonna come. And when it finally came, it was, it came at five o'clock in the morning for me, maybe even, I think it was 435 actually in the morning. My dad had called me, I was at my girlfriend's house and I got a phone call saying that, you know, that, you know, my dad said, uh, she did it. And I said, what? And he said, your, your, your mom's passed away. And at that point I dropped the phone. Right. I, I ran because I you know, my, my girlfriend only lived a block and a half from where, from where, my, from where I grew up. So I ran from her house. Because I couldn't drive in the car. I was too emotional. So I just yeah. ran. until so my wife, my now wife, girlfriend then, um, hopped in the car. She got me down. She threw me in the car. And there it was. There was, there was all, all these fire trucks in the front of my house and the ambulance. And um, I saw my mom's corpse on the couch from where she had passed away. that Now, in her spot, too, that's where she always drank, was in that spot. Um yeah, and I, I blame doctors and uh, and honestly I have no problem saying this, uh, fuck the medical system, dude. Like I don't agree with the medical system because it's already corrupted. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants uh, free healthcare, but there's a problem with our system and I don't understand. You want your basic checkups done, right? But um the hospitals and whatnot, they don't care, dude. They um my experience was that they, you know, after the, after dealing with my mom enough times, they didn't want to deal with her anymore. So they gave her whatever the fuck she wanted. I and mean, for her it was opioids. And that's what that was what killed her. She overdosed on opioids. She took a bunch of oxycodone, and uh, we weren't that we weren't there that time to catch it. So, H- had you caught it before? Yeah, my uh, three days prior actually, my dad had caught it. My, really? uh, yeah, uh, my wife and I were hiking, and we got a phone call that my that's she had OD'd, and she said, "I'm gonna go kill myself." My dad was like, will you, will "You stop fucking saying that." So she downed an entire bottle right there in front of my dad of you know oxycodone, and Whoa. so they took her to. So they called nine one one. They pumped her out of all mm-hmm. of these drugs, and she sat in the hospital for several hours getting IVs. Came back home sober, but then they just helped. They just prescribed the same medication again. They they prescribed her they more, gave it back to her. They they prescribed her more, and it was like, what the hell are you doing? You know, it this is what she's trying to kill herself on, and this is a an addictive drug, you know there's nothing, you know there's nothing physically wrong with her. It's, it's all the alcohol, alcohol she's taking, all the opioids you're giving her. You're not, you're not helping her situation, you're contributing to the problem. But there's this whole thing about, you know, I remember talking to all these social workers and there's this whole thing about, <laughs> sounds really screwed up, but like, the social right, human rights, you know. Um, and that's what really annoyed me was that you have all these laws in place that I was learning about that's, red tape you from helping the person who needs help i was suppressed and people you know helped me get through it and i could have easily gone down this path at any point in my life and i had people who stopped me from doing stupid things and said hey you need to look yourself in the mirror you need to get help you go to therapy um but then you know all these social works would say you can't you we can't do this we can't force her to do something she's want to do we can't force we can't forcefully commit her she's not doing this um, I would have, I would call the cops because she was getting ready to drive a few times, you know, uh, she's getting ready to hop in the car, she's getting ready to drive down to the store to pick up some more alcohol cause she's all out, but she's already drunk. And I would call 911 saying, my mom's getting ready to drive in the car. Can you stop her? And said, we can't do anything until she does it.
0: And it's like, and at that point it's way too
1: late. And I'm like, bro, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to stop her right now, dude. Um, and you're trying to save lives. Hers and potentially someone else's. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're telling me you can't do anything because she doesn't hop in the car yet. And that was a lot of the stuff I was experiencing was this whole, I'm trying to prevent something that's going to happen, you know? And it's not that I'm telling you that I think it's going to happen. It's going to happen if you don't do anything about it right now. And that was the same thing with the social workers. And I don't want, you know, the, the police were just doing what the police need to do. The social workers were just doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I saw a problem with the system in trying to help people. And so it always frustrates me uh, when people talk about these programs, because I'm like, I agree with this, This, you know, centralized medicine should be free for everybody, you know, like, I agree mm-hmm. with all that, but there's a bigger problem here. And it's not, I think we need to tackle the real problem first before we can tackle the availability of it, because... Even the top pain doctors, you know, like everyone's just, everyone's looking for their payday. These doctors are getting paid to prescribe you medication and stuff, you know. Yeah, the pushing of fentanyl. Yeah. A huge case. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, when my parents tried, my dad tried suing these ma- these doctors who were prescribing these medications, mom was still alive. There was times when mom- my mom came to her senses a few times and she w- was so rough for a few days and she would agree she had a problem. Not, you know, and I think now she was only saying that so she can get us off her back, but. They went and tried to sue these doctors. And they said, we can't do anything unless you have these doctors agree they're doing something wrong so you actually had to have other doctors betray their colleagues in order to try to gain some sort of justice but you can't do that because it's not benefiting those doctors who are assigned to go against their colleagues you know if anything that would almost hurt their own careers. it hurts their careers it hurts their jobs they, they can't get hired to places like kaiser and kaiser is the problem kaiser is the biggest problem we had um, kaiser not a sponsor <laughs> yeah kaiser's <laughs> clearly
0: not a sponsor here in this podcast and I, probably won't fear. yeah I, I i had i had all right, and this is your weekly ad for Oxycode. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's yeah. awkward, buddy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Right here's some uh, here's some methamphetamine. Here you go, dude. sorry. Yeah, um,
0: exactly. We were sponsored by Big Drugs. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: But yeah, like I had problems with Kaiser. We had problems with Stanford. Uh, again, I'm not bashing the people that worked there. You know, like we had a lot. I had talked to a lot of nice nurses. I, I talked to a lot of people who were patient with my mother. Who are patient with me? They're patient, with, you know, because there's a lot. There's a lot. There's some nights in there that I was super chilled out and going through the motions, and there were some nights where I was really pissed off and I would I would lash out at some of these workers. Um, I would question them and their ability, you know, to do certain, you know, of what they were trying to provide and do, but. um, I don't know where I was going with that. But basically, like, I, I don't bash and They're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. But there's a bigger problem here with the system than making sure it's accessible and free to everybody. We need to fix the core issue, and that's that people are getting paid. The, 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 the root of all evil people talk about sometimes is money. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, like, definitely. like, and I'm not bashing the whole idea of money either. You know, like, money money's a tool. Money, You need money to pay, you know, your mortgage your pay your food, travel. Money is used for a lot. Again, it's a tool. But, like, any tool, you can be corrupted by
0: it, you know? It's one of those necessary evils.
1: Yes. it's you, Everyone can be corrupted by this need of, you know, cash and everything like that. You know, just like I believe a firearm is also a tool, and people can misuse tools. So is a fork or a knife or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or a hoe, you know? So... Um, <laughs> But these, you know, there's, there's certain um, – And by Ho, I believe you mean rake. But it, like something out kind of a field rake. I mean, I mean both, Frank. I mean both. I a mean, <laughs> just... uh, Hogan can take you for all your money, and she's a bad tool. So, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> <Oy vey>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, dude. So, like, like, yeah, like these doctors are just kind of – I think there's some doctors out there, and there's some healthcare workers out there who are, you know, are, are gaining from the system from people like my mom and my dad who need this kind of stuff. And instead of doing what's right, they're doing what's easy. And you guys sometimes do what the right thing is, and the right thing's not always easy to do. Yeah. That's just been my experience with all of that, you know, with opioids, my mom, my father, the PTSD, the secondary PTSD, um, the whole excuse thing, you know, like, will the teachers think they're going to – are they going to allow kids to go to therapy and still see it the same way I see it? Um, all of that. But I just believe that there's always something to improve on. You can be the better you tomorrow. you are today so yeah and that goes on with the whole relationship thing you know like i don't believe in finding the right partner; i believe in being the right partner and so and
0: that that's hey if we weren't doing if i didn't have to edit out the pops i'd give you the snap the jazz claps (laughs) (laughs) that's deep thank you the one word that comes to mind with all of these conversations is wisdom. Mm-hmm. And you have been through so much, but you are clearly so wise, Michael. No, thanks, the ability, yeah, <laughs> of, you know, of course. You know how highly I think of you. Or at least I hope you do. <laughs> uh, just knowing to go to therapy when something goes wrong, to ask for help when you need it, I think is a crucial and a huge stepping stone in one's life and a huge sign of wisdom. Because it's very easy to go, no, I'm okay. I can figure this out. When there are people who are much more qualified to figure it out, you might be too close, too close to the trees to see the see the forest. <laughs> the tree. You know this. The, yeah. I hope you know the <laughs> saying. I don't know how it goes right now. Um, but you might be too close to the problem to really see what's going on. Oh, definitely, dude. Um, yeah, and asking for a uh, a third person perspective, especially from an expert in the area, uh, is huge. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like.
1: Like, you got to understand, like, someone's always there for you. And I think that's, like, I have, you know, there's always people in my life that, I think everyone has someone in their life that's going through something hard. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, if you haven't experienced it already, you will experience someone's going through something rough in your life. And you're going to be that go-to person. And it's like, how do I help someone get through something? And I think the best thing you can do is just be there. Um, a lot of my friends spent time with me in the hospital on Friday or Saturday night. You know, we're in high school. They sit with me, my, with my mom in the hospital, bring me McDonald's. Simple acts like that, you know, it's, um... Sometimes no words at all are better than trying to say the right thing. sometimes it's just the action of being there that like matters you know sometimes you don't have to talk things out you you just gotta be with that person,
0: yeah, I think that's huge, yeah, dude Michael, I absolutely love you, man um i I don't know how, but you are so incredible. you are the nicest person <laughs> I have ever met on this planet. I want that to be in this, but well, thanks um, I, was, I, was, I was gonna say my
1: last part was just being like, hey anyone who's listening to this I think I'm an asshole. I talked I talk to him. <laughs> I talk some political things tonight about my personal belief about people, you know, being lazy or whatever, or the, no. si- or the system, blah 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 blah. You know, like, but I don't usually talk like that. That's something that that's you know, you got me in the you got me in the train. So you're a good um, you know you're a good interviewer because 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 you because you, you, you bamboozled me in the same thing. So I'm like, okay, you know what, I gotta say this, you know. So for everyone watching or listening, you know, um, I don't usually talk like that. So. I believe you're all entitled to your own opinion. They're not going to hear this. I'm going to edit it all out. Okay. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You're
0: you're,
1: you're all entitled to your own opinion. You have your own worldview. This is my, this is my story. It's my worldview. Um, I, you know, it's obviously going to change over time. It's everything's changed. You know, I was born in the Republican household and married a Democrat, you know, and you know, I grew up in a Democratic school system here in California. So very different home lives combined, you know, and, um, Ash is important, dude. It's just the whole idea of love. So I love you all, you know? So I don't,
0: I don't care. I, I love your opinions. I'm open to hear them all. Don't worry, buddy. Um, Yeah, but I absolutely love you, man. You are the first friend I've interviewed on this uh, episode, I guess, two now. Um, and thank you so
1: much, man. Really awesome. Much. Thank you, dude. Hopefully I can come back for a second part.
0: That would be amazing. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you more. <laughs> well, everyone, if you're listening to this, I really appreciate you sticking it through. Uh, I thought this was a tremendous conversation where I personally learned a lot uh, about my friend and about his experiences and this whole portion of life that I nobody really talks about. And sometimes it's the things behind these doors or behind that we keep secret that really make us who we are. And sometimes sharing them isn't a bad thing. And that's the kind of conversations that I think we all can learn from. Well, I know it's weird to ask for, like, likes and subscribes or ratings and stuff, but please do all the podcast things. I would really appreciate it. And I hope that you saw the beauty of my friend that I see. Uh, Michael, if you're listening to this, I love you, buddy. I can't wait to talk with you again. I always have a good time when we hang out. Uh, Yeah. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye.